What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a legend, a legend of uh, international hardcore. I was going to say American hardcore, but international hardcore, Vic Bondi of the band Dead Ending, Jones Very, and of course... Articles of Faith. More on that in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to DamienAbraham.com. There's an email address there. Uh, you can also find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. If you use Facebook, you can find Turn Out a Punk on Facebook at Turn Out a Punk or facebook.com slash turn it a punk. Or you can, if you don't use Facebook, you want to see the, all that great content that gets posted on the Facebook page by my lovely brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham. More on him in a second. Uh, one more second, I'll talk about him. Uh, you can also find him over there on that Facebook page. And so he runs that thing. You can send him messages there. He also checks the email address. He's been really helping me out in the last few months. You know, he helped me out growing up too, you know, as my younger brother. But, you know, it was more like an older brother helping a younger brother kind of situation back then. Now it's more like a younger brother helping out their older brother, you know, so he's paying it all back, you know, in the present day. So I uh, really appreciate that, Tristan. So you can find him on Facebook and say how much you appreciate him keeping this show on track, because believe me, if it wasn't for him, don't know how on track this show would be right now. And if you're like, well, it's not very on track right now, believe me, it would be way worse without Tristan. So anyway, Long plug for that Facebook page. Uh, and if you don't use Facebook, you can find the same stuff over there on turnitopunk.tumblr.com. And if you would like to support this show, you can head over to iTunes and subscribe to this thing, write a review, and rate it. Speaking of, oh, and if you don't use iTunes, you can also support the show, but just by telling all your friends, letting everyone you know know about this thing. That would be a great way to help uh, help us out here at the show. Uh, speaking of helping us out here at the show, I got to say thank you once again to the fine folks over there at Vans. Vans Shoes and Vans, House of Vans, uh, Vans everything, you know. Um, anyway, they've come on board, helped me out with this podcast. I don't have to ask you to fill out any surveys. Don't have to, you know, uh, tell you to enter my coupon code or any of that kind of stuff, you know. They just want to support the show and let me pick my guests and, uh, yeah, and so it's great. Thank you so much to Vans for doing that because this is kind of what I was hoping for was someone to just be like, hey, we want to support your show. All you need to do is just keep doing it. So that's what I got with Vans. So thank you very much to those fine folks over there. Speaking of fine folks and thank yous, I got to give a huge thank you this week to Mr. Kevin Nunn from Alternative Tentacles and my brother, Tristan Abraham. Both of them have worked tirelessly to figure out a way to make this episode happen because both of them uh, got together. Kevin reached out and Tristan kind of worked together to wrangle myself. And uh, now you, dear listeners, because of the work of these two fine people, have a Vic Bondi turned out a punk episode to listen to. And it is awesome. 
I had never met Vic in my life. And so, you know, I don't like to do these things over, you know, the internet until I've met the person face to face because I find, you know, you don't really get a rhythm for someone until you kind of meet them face to face. But this thing, my gosh, we got on the phone and we started chatting. We did a, we did a, like a whole podcast before we even got to record this podcast. So it's not as long as it could have been, but that's because there was so much that we didn't record in the very beginning and we ran out of time. But, uh, you know, spoiler alert, there will be part twos. Um, this is a great episode. I had a lot of fun doing it. Vic's an amazing person to get to interview and, uh, yeah, played in, you know, some of the greatest bands of all time. Uh, articles of faith, uh, weight seven inch might be one of the, Favorite hardcore records, certainly one of my favorite American hardcore records of all time. Um, you know, they are just one of those bands. And uh, yeah, listen to the guy. You'll hear why. Uh, so I'm not going to blather on anymore because I actually have to hop on a plane again and get back on the road to shoot more of this wrestling TV show that I've been filming. Um, for those of you who are just joining this show for this episode, I'm doing a wrestling TV show called The Wrestlers right now. We're nearing the end of the series, but I have to go back to Japan. You know, I say it like it, it's it's a, a, a chore, but I'm going back to Japan tomorrow to film another bit of an episode. So I actually have to go now to the airport. So I'm not going to blather on anymore. I'm going to let you sit back, relax, and enjoy Vic Bondi on Turned Out a Punk. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Tristan. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Sorry, as I was just telling you off air, like you're a massive influence on me, and uh, you know, and you're you're from a scene that I'm I'm fascinated by. Like I'm fascinated by Chicago punk right the way through, and especially kind of like your period being the the germination of what would become an unbelievably important place for American independent music. Yeah, I mean, it didn't it didn't seem like it at the time, right? At the time, it seemed like Chicago was this backwater, and we were suffering because you know nobody knew where nobody knew what the Midwest was or what was going on there, right? You know, if you if you wanted any amount of attention, you had to go to the coasts, and you had to play in New York or you had to play in Los Angeles, and then any Eastern Seaboard city, Boston and and DC, right? But like. You know, Chicago was kind of like hidden back under the veil. Well, I, I want to get there, but I want to start this off the way I start them all off, which is, Vic, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever kind of came across the genre? Yeah, so, you know, I'm, I, I grew up in a military family, and when I was a teenager, we lived in Pensacola, Florida, which is a backwaters uh, uh, <laughs> you know, especially in the seventies when I was growing up there. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, I was, I, I, because I was in a military family, I didn't grow up listening to music. I, I didn't hear anything. I got a, I got a C in an English class once and my dad came down on me and banned me from TV. So, uh, until I got my grades up. So then I got this little transistor radio and I started listening to the radio and, um, I was listening to, this is when we lived in Maryland, and I, I was listening to a, a radio station in Baltimore. I don't remember the call letters, but they played all soul music. So, like, the first music I really listened to was Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, OJ's, Four Tops, uh, Curtis Mayfield. Like, that was kind of, you know, that was that really put its hooks in me. Um and then uh, what I did is I started discovering music through that. So then I discovered all the classic rock bands, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Who. And the Who were a big, big influence. And, you know, uh, so it's like 76 or 77 and I'm in Pensacola. And, you know, we start reading in Rolling Stone and the rock magazines about punk rock in London you know, uh, I remember the Rolling Stone article, Rock is Sick and Living in London. And um, and the, this is making its way through the high school, right? And everybody's like, you know, this band, the Sex Pistols, they stick vibrators up their ass when they play. <laughs> wow, that's so wild, you know. It's really, you know, and then the Sex Pistols were supposed to be on Saturday Night Live. And instead, Elvis Costello was on and he was terrific. 
And so we're, but you can't find these records in Pensacola, right? Yeah, like yeah. they're just, they're making their way down there. So, you know, I'm, I'm, and I, I finally got an electric guitar and I'm, I'm in this band with this guy who could play eruption and all the, all the Van Halen songs, just like, <laughs> like Eddie Van Halen and, you know, we would play shows down at the beach and, um, you know, the sea air will corrode your strings as you're playing. So they turn green. And, uh, we, we, um, were playing who and kinks covers and, sh- and, and he would play the Eddie Van Halen shit. And somehow <laughs> he gets, he gets a hold of the sex pistols record and we put it on and this, caterwauling screech comes through, you know, and I'm like, what the fuck is that? And we're, we just didn't know what to do with it. But then like a week later, I, uh, find, um, give him enough rope by the clash. It's probably 78. So it's a little bit later on. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I put that record on and there's that snare shot on safe European home. And like, that was it. I was like, all in, I'm here. Like I was just totally committed. And then the next year I moved up to Illinois and the clash played the Aragon ballroom. And, uh, I went to that show and, you know, they just storm out on stage and they're playing, uh, they opened with I'm so bored with the USA and, you know, they stormed the stage. I, I had never seen anything like it. It was just, it was rage and spectacle and it was intelligence, right? And it was movement. It was all the things that I read about in the 60s, you know, because you, you grow up in the shadow of the 60s. You don't grow up in the 60s. So I'm listening to all those great 60s bands, but I wasn't part of that movement. I was too young for it. I kind of missed all of that. And so... I'm reading about all this stuff, but I don't experience it directly. And here comes punk and it's got the same vibe to it. It's a movement. It's socially progressive. Um, it's, it's got all sorts of dynamism and, uh, anti-authoritarianism to it. And I'm like, yeah, this is it. This is, this is what I was looking for. And, um, so that was, that was step one and then step two. So then, you know, I get into a punk rock band in, in Illinois called Direct Drive, and it's it's not very good. It plays Blondie covers and Clash covers and Sex Pistols covers. And did you guys record? Um, uh, well, we re- we recorded. I've got a tape somewhere of like we had one good song called Belfast, but it was you know it was like. I, I was so Joe Strummer fixated, man. I just wanted to be <laughs> Joe Strummer, you know? And uh, so it was pretty derivative. And we got slagged a lot in Chicago because we, we started in Chicago as Direct Drive, and we got slagged by a lot of the established bands for being derivative. And and, and really, in retrospect, probably justifiably so, right? Who were uh, the established bands at that time in Chicago? Just I'm, I'm really, you know, because obviously, you know, like the, the early sort of, punk sort of pre-hardcore scene there or the first wave scene like it's not like a lot of those bands got records out you know it's not as well documented as say like you know new york or or la or something well it was the oz crowd right and so oz oz uh definitely put a lot of that on the map and the first time i saw punk in chicago was at at one of the oz pickup bars and it was the effigies Mm -hmm. and the first wave of punk bands were the effigies uh uh, Strike Under, Naked Ray Gun, Trial by Fire, uh, DVA, a band that Eric Spicer from Naked Ray Gun w- was in his first band, which was a great band. Um, you know, those were the first wave of punk bands. And Direct Drive started out in Illinois, out in DeKalb, where, which is about 70 miles west of Chicago, where I was at. I went to college there for a little bit. A legendary and punk the, suburb. Uh, yeah, well, it's not really a suburb. I mean, it's a rural town. A rural it's, town it's quite. Yeah, yeah you know, um, we'd have to drive an hour and a half into the city to see anything, and uh, but the suburbs were out there. They were from Sycamore, Illinois. So, so I started hanging out a lot with them, and and basically they would play. We would play in their basement, and once in a while we would play in like some 
you know, jock bar in DeKalb and the frat boys would threaten to beat our asses. And, you know, uh, but when we moved to Chicago, when we decided that we would play punk rock and we, two of us moved to Chicago and, and Joe and I moved to Chicago and then we found Bill and we found Dave uh, and we started direct drive there you know, I, I think like the effigies in particular were super dismissive, uh, not just because we were clash derivative, but also because, you know, the left wing politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were super de- de- dismissive. Uh, Naked Ray Gun was a little bit more welcoming. Strike Under was super um, supportive. Those guys, Steve Bjorklund was very cool. And Strike Under was, in my estimation of that first crowd, that first wave of bands, they were the best. They were really good. Um, how did like, uh, the subverts and, uh, and, uh, like DA and those bands fit into that scene? Were they like kind of outliers or were they part of it? No, they were outliers. I mean, and, and you know, it was really the effigies were the core of the scene and in, in many ways, justifiably so, because that first record is great. And that band initially live was really great. I mean, that sound that they had, that kind of mid-tempo, grindy punk, I mean, that set that set the Chicago sound up, right? It had that sort of um, um, mid-range guitar sound that just crunched your head. It was, they were, the first time I saw them at Oz, I was just absolutely floored by them. Um, and and it, it really kind of crushed me. They did, they did this one thing once where I, I had them sign the body bag signal for me. And I gave it to them to sign it, and they wrote, uh, Biafra Punks, fuck off, on it. (laughs) Like, you know, it was like, wow, I I guess I'm on the outs with you guys. And um, so it it wasn't very good. Uh, But I do think, I mean, that first record is great. My issue with the the effigies was they never moved really beyond it. Like, they had that sound, but that was was it. Mm -hmm. It never evolved never changed. And so any, any, all subsequent records kind of bored the fuck out of me because they were just the same thing. But like the, um, initially I thought that band was amazing. I thought that, you know, it was just, I, I really wanted to be part of that scene, but that scene didn't want to be part of me. So, you know, what, what we did articles of faith. So the direct drive thing, yeah, we were pretty derivative and, um, we weren't, making our own way for ourselves. So then, um, you know, step two was my parents lived in Washington, D.C. because dad was in the military. And so um, now I'm flying back on holidays to D.C. And so I start going to shows in D.C. And uh, so I see the Bad Brains in like like 81. Mm. And that was the second, you know, uh, St. Paul on the road to Damascus moment where I was just, wow. This is it. This is this is the shit. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, and there, you know, there had been a, there had been a lot of thrash music going on at that time. Hooskers were in their thrash scene at that point, and they had come through town and played. And um, so, you know, the the band generally felt like we should reinvent ourselves and you know abandon kind of the mid tempo clash style punk rock we were playing and play hard and fast. And that was the birth of articles of faith. And because the, the sound was so different, uh, we renamed the band and that, and that's it. And then we started playing record, making records and playing out. And, um, because we, we weren't part of the scene, we just had to build our own. So, um, you know, the effigies, they were from Evanston anyway, they were actually from the suburbs. We were living in the city. So, um, we just started collecting this motley group of losers and geeks and political idiots and um, remarkably decent, kind people. And it just formed this disparate band of misfits in the city. We, we would put on our own shows at the Central American Social Club because, you know, we couldn't play the clubs anyway. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it, it, it sort of organically developed, right? And then eventually we got uh, national attention and all the bands nationally that would come into town, the hardcore bands would play the Central American Social Club. And, you know, I 
we got to be good friends with the big boys. We got to be good friends with Canadian bands like uh, Personality Crisis and then Toronto, the Young Lions. And um, we, we got friends with guys in California, Channel 3. And, you know, I knew Ian and the East Coast and um, MDC and guys like that. So, you know, we just um, we just grew it. We, we grew from misfits and outsiders to uh, uh, I don't know if we were ever a really popular band. I actually think we're more popular now than we were in our day. But we, we grew into a part of that scene, um, you know, part of this and definitely the h- hardcore band in Chicago because the effigies then went on this kind of downward trajectory. Um, they were really interested in being a rock band and then getting a major label thing going. And they kind of alienated a lot of people, not just me, but a lot of people with their attitude. And so uh, the scene definitely was divided between them and us. Um, but, you know. I don't know. There were there were bands that overlapped because Naked Ray Guns was friends with both guys, and you know, so it it wasn't it wasn't as brutal as it seems, or as opposed as it seems. And I, you know, for all the slagging that I've done of the effigies over the year, uh, Paul Economo was at a uh, a show that I played in Chicago about seven years ago, and I talked to him for a long time, and um, you know, we just. Uh, and, and, you know, I've done an effigy cover. We did Mob Clash one night in Chicago at a show. Uh, I did that with um, John and Joey Haggerty and um, playing uh, guitar and drums. And John was like, <laughs> John was, he, when we were rehearsing it, he's like, dude, are you going to go up there and like slag the effigies and slam them in the song? Because if you do it, I'm not playing. And I'm like, no man, I mean I'm a genuine fan. I want to play it right, righteously and straight up. And it was, <laughs> so, so we did it, you know. And I mean, uh, that that stuff is thirty years in the past. Um, so, yeah, but uh, was it like, but it, like you know, not, and not you know, personal personality wise, but like, is it almost like a generational thing? Like you guys were just. Like that was, you know, the, the, the punk generation, the hardcore punk generation, you guys were the hardcore generation coming up. Like, you know, like you said, like, you know, people that were in touch with, I guess, anti-Reagan politics and people that were in touch with, you know, like the, the idea of like a DIY national international network of bands and people. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was a lot of that, right? Like the effigies had a manager. They were like shopping them to labels. Uh, we didn't, we were self-managed and you know, we were just, we we were fucking idiots. We're driving around the the country in a shitty ass van, you know, playing, playing punk rock shows that are in gas stations that are in veterinary clinics that are in ice cream parlors. Right. Like, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a damn clue, but we just wanted to get out there and play, man. And we did. Yeah. Um, so there was, there was definitely that ethos. I mean, the effigies were a much more professional band. They were better musicians. Uh, but you know, we, we were, we were not bad ourselves. And, um, they said, they said some pretty unkind things about me over the years. Uh, uh, I think, you know, they used to dismiss everything that we did musically and, uh, and, I think that's wrong because if you listen to the records that we did record in that time frame, they're actually pretty innovative. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so so I I I think that was unfair, but you know, people say shit. <laughs> but you almost have to in punk like dismiss the next generation to make sure that your generation is the vanguard still, right? Like you almost have to be like, no, no, we're the like we're where it stops. Like the next generation is completely invalid because. Were, well, we were never we were never like that. I mean, we embraced everybody that came along. I mean, there was what was great about the scene that we were in was there were a lot of upstart bands, and they they uh, some of them carried a lot of fucking attitude, rights of the accused, and yeah, um, you know, I mean, Jay went on to play in White Zombie, uh, so he was a straight up Mac. Uh, they, you know, I mean, but they were a good band. They were fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I. And I and I'm not one to slag off any of the bands that came, you know, '90s punk sucks. Like, or even the stuff that's going on today. Every so often, I run across a band that I really like. I, and I, I mean, my tastes are my tastes have always been super Catholic. I never was just a punk rock fan. Um, and that was the other thing in those days. There was a, there was a lot of orthodoxy about punk, right? Like, 
you you couldn't be a Neil Young or Bruce Springsteen fan and be a punk rock fan because Neil Young and Bruce being Springsteen sucked. And, you know, if you like them, you suck. Right. So, you know, we would almost, it would almost be like you had to, you had to like be a, um, a silent Bruce Springsteen fan, you know, you couldn't be over. And, and I wasn't, I would just say, yeah, I like him. And people would be like, see, he likes Bruce Springsteen. He sucks. <laughs> so, you know, I think, and, that, I think that just started fading now. Like that, that almost, you know, strict, you know, orthodox view of, of punk music. i like, that was still entrenched when I was getting into it. And I think it just seems like sort of the last five years, maybe that's sort of broken down again. Because, yeah, like, it wasn't like that in the very first, first wave. Like, you see tons of disparate bands coexisting and playing together and encouraging each other. But there's just something about it getting codified, I guess, where it's like us and them. Well, and there there really was that. And that was the point of making those, about delimiting it like that and creating those boundaries. And I think the thing about Bruce Springsteen that people hated wasn't so much that he was his music. I mean, I personally... After Nebraska, I kind of lost Bruce Springsteen, and I, I didn't recover him until last year when I went to this show. I, I, it just so happened I was working by Key Arena, and he was playing Key Arena, so I just like – I'm like, fuck it. I'll go see Bruce Springsteen. Why not? I haven't seen him in 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I walked over there, and I scalped a ticket, and the motherfucker played for four hours. He and it for- worked. I I was absolutely blown away, right? Like the guy's what, 65, 67? Yeah. And he's just and, – and Max Weinberg, who's got to be 62, 63, you know, Max Weinberg didn't stop playing for four fucking hours. And he didn't take a break. Like in the old days, he would take that intermission period. He didn't even take a break. He played for four fucking hours, man. Yeah. And And – you know, I mean, there's a lot of Bruce Springsteen songs that are super dopey and sentimental and stupid. Um, but when 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 three hours and thirty five minutes into it, he plays Badlands and it absolutely rips your face off. You're like, wow, okay. <laughs> uh, Thanks so, for the cardio to keep that up. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I I. Uh, I mean, I really didn't listen to him from. I still don't listen to his records because I kind of. He became kind of this. Um, he became kind of this caricature of himself, you know. And uh, I honestly wish that the Bruce Springsteen that recorded the Wild, the Innocent, and the E Street Shuffle had that guy had evolved because that guy would have been he would have been Tom Waits, but um, you know he didn't. He became this big rock god. And all the compromises that you make to be big rock god, like, you know, born to the USA where there are no guitars. Um, but you got to respect the man's work ethic. And, I mean, he, he did a great job. Fuck, I was into it. I don't like the stuff he does with Tom. I think that stuff's not good. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, you know, like, but anyway, yeah, back in the punk days, to be a Bruce Springsteen fan meant that you were beyond the pale. <laughs> Well, you know, and, it, and I think it's it's like now it's changed. Obviously, you know, there's whole genres of punk, sub subsects of punk that are like as indebted to Bruce Springsteen as they are to any punk band. But, but like you know, it, you still you know, as I say, like I think that just broke down recently again. I think it's probably because the internet and people's access to information now. Where you know, at one point, it's almost like you had to choose just because you only had limited resources in which to devote to music and because you could only buy so many records, but now that's true. You can be in everything. Yeah. And you should be right. Like there's lots of good music and lots of good styles. Like, yeah, I never, I never played soul music. I, I can't do it. Right. Like I, I wouldn't be able to sing that way. Who can sing like Marvin Gaye? No one. No one right. Yeah. So I couldn't sing like that. And it would just be stupid for me to try that. But wow, dude, like, yeah, that stuff is awesome. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then, you know, I, I still, I listen to, um, I'm digging this band magnet school right now. They're pretty good. They got a lot of guitars in there. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't listen to as much music as I used to, um, or as much new music as I used to, but when somebody turns me on to something that I like, I'll listen to it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't 
have to be a band from the old days, and I definitely don't listen to um, stuff from the time that I was 21. <laughs> and you know, the other the other thing is, I think as you get older, and this is the greatness of the internet too, you can you can go back and you can discover music that was made many decades before you were born, right? So yeah, uh, because I because my music from when you were 21, I think. <laughs> right. So like. Um, my daughter is a jazz musician, and uh, she turns me on to big band and swing and bebop, and um, she's always bringing to the table some jazz musician from the 1930s that I'd never heard about, um, and I'm like, wow, this is fucking great. So, you know, it just, it, I, I think that, I think that even though the internet is, is the reason that the economics for being a musician are absolutely obliterated right now, and everybody's semi-pro. Now, I think that's the new future is everyone's semi-pro. Mm -hmm. um, you, uh, it, it does give you access to this world of people who are made wonderful music that you might not hear otherwise, you know? Well, it's funny because, like, yeah, you think about how, you know, like, in this, once again, it's not a bad thing, but one of the things that the economics changing did is kind of do away with the idea of a punk musician, punk label owner, I should say, that's able to set up an industry that exists completely outside of the corporate channels. Like now you have to kind of be part of the system, you know, like you have to have your records available on Apple music and you have to have it accessible over a telecommunications network that's maintained by a giant telecommunications corporation. Like it's not like before where you could have, you know, just your independent records sold in just your independent stores. But right. there's that trade-off that, you know, now I can hear music from all over the world. So it, it affected the economics of things in a profound way, but it also has improved my consumption. So I, I don't know if that's a fair trade. I don't even know what point I'm getting at. But I've always found that kind of interesting that we don't have, you know, this – we like punk – in a very short period of time, created almost like a, a an independent economy for itself, and now that's gone. Yeah, that's right. It is gone. I mean, um, I would, and the other thing about it that's weird is is the economics have changed. One part of the economics of punk that have changed quite a bit is it's super easy to do a record now, right? You, um, you know, when we did the "What We Want Is Free" single in nineteen eighty one or 82, sorry. Um, the only way for us to record that was to go into a big studio in Schaumburg, Illinois. I think Cheap Trick recorded there and to go in there at 2 a.m., right? <laughs> when they would when they would decide that we get the overnight rates. So we, we literally recorded the What We Want Is Free record from like two in the morning to eight in the morning. Was there was, like a punk you know, hook up there? Like how did you guys get that time slot or just call that studio and they'd be like, okay, we have this cheap slot for you? I don't remember. I, I mean, it was just, you know, it was the only time that we could afford, right? Because yeah. we probably did the record for $500. And at the time, uh, I was working in a sandwich shop and Dave was working as an, on construction. And I don't know where Bill and Joe were working. But, like, you know, we didn't, we didn't have any money. <laughs> so, uh, so putting together $500 – to go overnight and record a record, that was probably everything we had. Yeah, you know, and uh, um, but it was the only way we could do it. But now, I can record a record right here in my my house, yeah. right, and I can put it up on Bandcamp for zero cost. Um, so, but you know, the problem with that is, and everybody does it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm playing a lot with other musicians in town now in Seattle, but they're, none of them are punk bands. They're like experimental music and everybody's got their stuff up on Bandcamp, and that's great. But you know, it also diminishes in some way, um, the artifact and the ritual of consuming music, right? Because, um, yeah, you just download it. So and it's about as valuable as something that you download and dispose of, right? Like, you know, uh, when you, there was a kind of ritual to the consumption of music in the eighties that was super important. That R O R O I R bad brains cassette tape, that thing was like an icon 
in our van. It went on every tour with us, you know, and you had the artwork of the Capitol getting shattered and it was already, you know, it was an icon, right? So you don't have those, you don't have those attendant qualities now, which is one reason I think like a lot of bands, including Dead Ending, you know, we're still trying, we still put out vinyl uh, because the vinyl has that ritual quality to it that a download from the internet doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it also, I, I, I think that's also why people don't necessarily, you know, not to say like people appreciate music less now, but it's just, you know, you don't have to appreciate music in the same way. Like once you committed to buying something, you had the physical burden of that object. So you would find a way to appreciate it. Or if you didn't appreciate it, you would make sure you really didn't like it before you dismissed it because you had committed to that physical object and you then, you know, had this thing. Like, even if you were just going to sell it back to the, to the record store, that still required an extra effort. So before you did that, you would listen to it, you know, quite a few times I would find, you know, and that, I don't know if that happens now. I don't know if things get that third look in the same way, because I know myself, like who has time to give things a third look anymore. Well, yeah, and there was—I mean, how many how many bands did you listen to that you didn't get it until the third? Yeah, listened, absolutely, right? absolutely. Yeah. You know, and there's and and it's how much stuff would I've missed out on, and have I missed out on just because it's it's just too hard to do that now. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's uh, you know, it's it's I've been in the software industry since 1995, and and um, it's really software has been a mixed blessing for music. Uh, in, in some ways, like, like you were just saying, it means you have access to a world of information that you never had before, a world of excitement you never had before. But on the other hand, it is made, and, and you can make that music more easily than you've ever been able to make it. And you can share it. Like, I mean, I do, um, I do projects with, with Jay Robbins and he's in Baltimore. Right. And, um, you know, uh, I've done on the new dead ending record. I did. I'm not trying to remember whether I did. I did a bunch of the vocals here in my house and just sent them to Jeff in Chicago uh, because I could right? like you, your, your ability to disconnect the music from the moment is kind of astonishing. So um, that's terrific. I mean, it's really great for musicians, but, and, and, you know, the, if you have a logic pro or pro tool set up in your house with your computer, you can take any brain fart that you want and you can dump it onto the digital. And if you don't like it, you can delete it. And if you do like it, you can modify it. You can stretch it. You can put reverb on it. You know, you can do anything to that track you want at the click of a button, which is you could never do in the old days in the studios. You would have to set up mics. And I mean, when we did the Jones Berry records, I can remember pan reverb boxes in the studio in at Fort Apache where you know, it's literally a piece of metal inside a wooden box where, <laughs> where it echoes, right? Like, you know, you, you the, the, it's so much easier to record and make music now than ever before. That's phenomenal. But the, the intensity with which you approach music now as a consumer has changed pretty dramatically. And the economics of it for musicians who want to make a living as musicians are daunting. Um, so... Uh, very much a mis- mixed blessing. Very much a mixed blessing. Well, and I imagine even the intensity that artists approach making the music is different because, as you said, you know, when you guys did What We Want is Free, you know, that's $500. That was all the money you guys had. You went in and you nailed those songs, and there's a reason that record, you know, is still listened to today is because those performances still jump off that record because of the situation you were in, whereas now... You know, not that bands don't have pressures on them when they record, but it's not the same pressure of you got to record this or else we're, we have to leave the studio and there's no record. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, I don't, I, I mean, there's a different intensity, uh, you know, the, um, the DE records, uh, the new dead ending records got a track called fate mm-hmm. on it that, uh, it feels like the end of the world. And definitely we hit that that way. And when, and then on the new RSA record that comes out in December, you know, we, we had not been together for 10 years. So to get back in the studio together, we played that record almost entirely live. And, and that thing 
it's blistering because of it. So, I mean, maybe I'm deluding myself if I think those records are on par with Articles of Faith, but um, they certainly feel as intense. No, absolutely. And I mean, like you specifically, I mean, just artists in general, like I think myself included, like when, you know, and, I, and Fucked Up's obviously, you know, only been around 15 years, 16 years at this point, 17 years at this point. But like, even in that time period, when we first started, you know, it was slightly less pressure as far as recording, but it was still like a largely kind of analog approach to the recording process. So you had to be in the studio and you were spending money. So the approach that even, uh, you know, the approach that I went into the studio with then has changed so much even now when I'm in the studio, even though I'm paying in the studio the same way. But I just think the way we record is different now. And it's just, it's just different. I mean, it, it, I, I've never, you know, um, Joe Principi, who plays in Arise Against, he was in Dead Ending until the new record uh, because he couldn't he couldn't manage Rise Against in any other bands. That, but, um, you know, Joe would talk about the Rise Against records and, you know, those guys would go into the studio, Bill St- Stevenson's studio in Fort Collins, and they would record for a month and a half, like eight weeks. Yeah. And, Actually, when I did the records with Tom, which never got put out, you know, the way Rage Against the Machine recorded was the way that the Weatherman Project recorded, too. We would, we went into a big studio in, in Los Angeles, and Sony was paying for everything, and they had, you know, drum techs and all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, you know, I, my whole life, wanted to be able to do a record where, you know, I had eight weeks with an unlimited budget to just record every fart and burp <laughs> I could think of and put it on a record and have it be great art. And, you know, I, I never did get that in my entire career. Now, 28 albums later, I, every album has been at the longest I've ever recorded a record was a week. Right. Like I've never been able to do it except under intense time pressures because of the economics of it. Just, yeah. it just doesn't, I know there are people that can do that and it's awesome and God bless them. But I, I was never that person. And maybe in a way it's maybe in a way it's a good thing. Cause when you have those constraints, you know, you're going to, it does add a kind of uh, intensity to it that you wouldn't have, you know, if you're recording the white album, right. Where you just lay around the studio for three months and, you know, we're Sandinista. I mean, Sandinista, literally every fart and birth, right. <laughs> makes it, yeah. yeah. Well, that's like a, one of the reoccurring things on this show is, is uh, you know, that just seems coming up is almost there's a divide of the clash over the Sex Pistols. Like, it seems like, you know, people always seem to gravitate closer to one than the other. And I think those two records are, you know, like the two records, sorry, those two bands are almost perfect examples of like the constraints of time and place versus a band that had a whole career to kind of unfold like the sex whistles are kind of a perfect encapsulation because they only really had that little pocket of time to exist in. Whereas because the clash had all that time to unfold as a band and to go into those kind of less than savory, you know, farts getting captured on record periods in their career. It's, it's almost like you get to see the warts and all at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, w- I did see the Sex Pistols once. I saw them in, I think, 2000 or 2001. They played Bumbershoot here in Seattle. And they were horrible. I mean, they weren't good. They It was Glenn Matlock playing bass, you know, and yeah. it, was the, well, it was the original band. And they weren't good. They didn't play well. They just kind of phoned it in. And whereas that, that very first Clash concert that I saw in 79, that was an amazing show. Uh and I don't know that the Clash played particularly well either because I see video of them now and all the guitars are out of tune. And Paul Simonon was kind of a limited player. He could hardly, you know, thump his way across the bass. But, uh, you know, they 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 were all in, right? Mm-hmm. Like live, they were just going to leave it on the floor. And that's exactly what you wanted to see. And, and, and the Sex Pistols, they just kind of phoned it in. You know, they're just like, yeah, we're making Sony up here. Enjoy. And I'm like, fuck you. I'm not enjoying it. Right. And I, I love that music. And you guys are horrible. <laughs> like, get off the stage. I really like they weren't good. 
Well, that was because they were almost out so, of the, they were out of their time by that point. Like they only, to me, they only have that like brief pocket where they exist that first run. And even then, by the time they go to America, you're right. They're kind of phoning it in when you see a lot of footage of that performance, especially the last show in San Francisco. Yeah. But like those, some of that early footage that you see of them playing, like when they found their sound, obviously, like it's a very small window with the Sex Pistols, but for that small window, they're that band that, you know, they might not be sticking those vibrators up their ass, but they're, they're still like that kind of like power, I think, or that kind of shock. And it must've been crazy to hear that when that came out, you know, like imagine when you were hearing Elvis Costello. Sorry. I I did see Costello in 79. He was pretty great too. Well, yeah. Yeah. Like I was going to say, like when you saw him on Saturday night live, did that like, that probably didn't live up to what your expectations of what punk was going to sound like based on what you've been reading about the sex pistols, I would imagine. Right. Yeah. But it was this super pissed off geek. Yeah. Right. Just, <laughs> yeah. It's like spewing venom at the TV. I was, I'm, I'm in, I love it. And you know, I did see him in 79 and he was great. Uh, I just saw him last year. He, of all things, this was, this was the, I mean, this was my daughter's doing. She took me, he played at White River Amphitheater outside of Seattle, opening up for Steely Dan. And (laughs) this is is Sophie grabbing me and saying, let's go to this concert because she loves Steely Dan. So I'm like, all right, right, why not? And Elvis Costello, who I I, I saw him, I've seen him a couple times live in my life. And um, once he phoned it in, once he was awesome. Uh, once he once he was off, another time he was unbelievable three hour show with him going through jazz standards and he was just that incredible voice, but then like at White River Amphitheater he just totally phoned it in he just like he couldn't he could couldn't care less about being on stage. And then Steely Dan came on and played an amazing show, absolutely great, absolutely great. And so you know the thing the thing is. My attitude, especially this far along, in it, you know, you know, fifty-seven-year-old man is about to go to Chicago and play a fucking hardcore show in a bar in Chicago. Like, dude, the word is: no matter what your age, do not get up on that stage and play unless you are going to give yourself completely to doing it. Like, like, just, like, just don't do it. Yep. Either get up on stage and give everything you have to that moment, and and lose yourself in it. And, and lose yourself in what everybody in that room has come for and is going to want to experience and, and commit yourself to the maelstrom and commit yourself to the sonic whirlwind and absolutely do it or don't do it. Right. Don't half step. You just it just it's so compromising for a, a talented man like Elvis Costello to get up there and just take a fucking paycheck. Maybe it's the fact that he is a professional. He's been doing all of his life. And he, you know, for me, because I don't, I I don't play, but like four times a year. Right. So every time I'm playing a show, it's everything to me. But for him who plays, you know, 300 shows a year, maybe, maybe you get to the point when you're playing that much music where you just phone it in. But to me, it just seems wrong. Like you just, any, it's, it's gotta be wrong. Cause I saw Bruce Springsteen do it at 67 for four hours. Right. So like, Either either do it all the way or don't do it at all. Yeah, like I I, I, yeah, like, I couldn't agree with you more on that one because I think it, nothing undermines everything you did for that audience more than you just going out there and phoning it in. You know? Like, yeah. And yeah. It, it's it's and Elvis Costello is someone that uh you know it's it's amazing how many different careers he's had in that one career because he's someone that I've only seen a couple times, but same sort of thing. He's someone who I've seen be great and also someone I've seen not give a fuck. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, man, I got to go to work. Dude, so. I understand. I was going to say, I really, I was going to say thank you so much for taking this time. Obviously, I want to, we even talk about my favorite seven inch of all time weight, but we'll have to talk about, we'll have to wait till the next time, Vic. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Well, let's... that's fine. Like, uh, uh, let's do it again. Like, De- Dead Endings playing November, se- November 18th at the Liars Club in Chicago. And then we're working on a report suspicious activity show in Chicago uh, in February. So, you know, I'm I'm still playing out there. So I think maybe let's try and do this again before the RSA show. And yeah, let's um, definitely, definitely. I'd love to have you back right. on. Great, man. Thanks a lot for your time. I appreciate it. No, I can't thank you enough for yours. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you soon, Vic. Thank you. All right. Bye bye.
Thank you, Vic, for coming on the show. And as you can hear right there, we got more. We got more planned. I barely, barely scratched the surface with them. There's a lot more to talk about. So much more to talk about. But that will be for future episodes of this podcast. Uh, because, uh, you know, that was, uh, I got to do that again. We're definitely going to have more, more of those. We were talking about doing it really soon. So hopefully that happens really soon. Um, and thank you once again, very much to the fine folks at Alternative Tentacles. You can pick up all the dead ending records over there. And also like Alternative Tentacles, one of the best labels of all time. Chris and I have talked about this on Turn It Punk footnotes. Uh, so if you need to go back and listen to us, go through the discography in painstaking detail. I think it's like six episodes back. It's definitely around the Gel by Afra episode. Um, but we we kind of went into that discography and realized, yeah, AT still, still, and always was one of the greatest punk labels of all time. So pick up Dead Ending Records, Vic's new band, pick up all your, all so many records there. Um, and thank you very much again, Kevin. Thank you, Tristan. Thank you, you, for listening. Thank you, Universe, for making this happen. Uh, next week on the show... My buddy, my friend, coming back for a part two. He's just put out a new book, so we're going to talk all about it next week. Uh, or yeah, next week. Tony Retman, uh, author, um, record label mogul, and friend. Next week on the show, it's a good one. It's a good one. We get we get deep. It's almost like a turn it a punk footnotes style episode, one of those ones. So anyway, that's next week on the show. Thank you everyone for listening. Go out there and make your own culture. Uh, if you're in Japan and uh, you want to hang out, reach out, get a hold of me. I want to be there for a few days, so I got some time. Anyway, hit me up. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, I love you. You know, once again, go there and make that own culture because you never know what it's going to take you. And I'll see you next week. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 